0: This regularly scheduled program to bring you a special news bulletin we take you now to our reporter on the scene of this quickly unfolding story this is Kristen coming to you live from my house I am here to report a truly extraordinary situation a non-human creature has just been sighted down my hallway I was making my way back from the kitchen after draining the remainder of my coffee you see because it had cat hair in it again I don't know how it finds its way in there, but it's a daily battle, you understand? Anyhow, I was walking back to the studio, minding my own business, when suddenly I saw it. It was just standing there. And ladies and gentlemen, it was grotesque. It's tall, with bright, luminescent skin, elongated arms, big dark bug eyes. It's pacing the hallway, looking for me. I fear I may not be long for this world, folks. I shall broadcast and bring you this breaking story as long as I can. Well, now, I do believe this is curtains for me, folks. Keep your family close. Find somewhere to hide. I may be its first victim, but this is surely only the beginning of a deep educational dive into aliens. In pop culture. Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Yes, I am an idiot. And yes, we are exploring E.T. in cinema, in literature, and in pop culture today. Their portrayals, their stereotypes, and the effect that that has had on society and the world. And vice versa. E.T. is alive and well in our cinema. I should know. As a major portion of research for this one required me in my sweatpants, popcorn in hand, in front of the tube. Not my worst Wednesday night. Though the field of ufology can arguably be said to have begun in the 40s, we know that the UFO and ET phenomenon was alive and well before Roswell and Kenneth Arnold, thanks to movies and literature. One seminal work was written in 1898 by H.G. Wells. Since then, This novel, The War of the Worlds, has influenced countless adaptations and interpretations in various forms of media. One in particular would be cemented forever into our pop culture history. That, of course, would be Orson Welles' live radio broadcast with the Mercury Theater in 1938. In H.G. Wells' time, there was a wave of public fascination with the idea of life on Mars and enough scientific theories and speculation to go around. Also during that time, the socio-political climate was a bit rough. I mean, who are we kidding? When in history have we ever just chilled? It was the height of European imperialism, nationalism was rising, social inequalities were growing, and labor movement strikes and protests— persisted. And I think it's important to be aware that over the course of E.T.'s continued portrayal in pop culture, it can fluctuate based on what's going on on the world stage. And that fluctuation can inspire long-lasting, detrimental, and possibly misleading stereotypes for decades to come. I say that because it has. One work thought to likely play a role in shaping Wells' novel was called The Battle of Dorking, which was an early science fiction story about a surprise attack and invasion of England, the most powerful colonizer in the world, by a technologically superior and powerful foreign adversary. The human invaders in the Battle of Dorking quickly overcome the British defenders and overtake the country. And that is the story of War of the Worlds, subbing human invaders for Martians. Orson Welles' adaptation of War of the Worlds would unexpectedly solidify alien invasion into our societal consciousness. The evil alien, the technologically superior and powerful Martian, it would explore themes of colonialism, imperialism, and the vulnerability of humanity in the face of a superior force from outer space. Something we can't expect, something we can't Defend ourselves against. On October 30th, 1938, the Mercury Theater troupe would begin their adapted broadcast with the disclaimer that this was a fictional story, just a radio play. It would continue with the announcement of what they were about to present and the setup for the story that was to follow before diving into the first act, beginning innocently enough with a presentation of dance music for listeners' entertainment. A few minutes in, this would be followed by the first of many interruptions to the regularly scheduled program in a style of breaking news bulletins describing strange, flaming, blue objects shooting down to Earth. And these bulletins would continue and then escalate to eyewitness and reporter-on-the-ground accounts describing events as they unfolded of what quickly became apparent was an alien invasion. Now, I remember having heard that there was this nationwide panic thanks to this broadcast. While that is not true, there wasn't panic across the country. There was a bit of local panic in the areas (laughs) that this live breaking story was taking place, primarily New Jersey, before moving on to New York. So, yes, in those areas, there were reports of panicked calls flooding the police and emergency lines. And there were a few reasons for that panic to be valid. Late revisions of the play removed any reference to this story taking place over the course of a few days, instead opting to make it sound like it was happening in real time. Also, many folks tuned into the broadcast after the disclaimer so they would not have heard it. There would be a second disclaimer of fictionality taking place at the break into Act 2. However, due to other late revisions, Act 1 was lengthened so much that the regular Act 2 break, expected by audiences familiar with dramatic radio show formats at the time, to come at the 30-minute mark, was pushed, landing about 10 minutes later. The only other format audiences knew to not take their station break were real news bulletins. So, it was the perfect storm for many. Orson Welles and his team, in all reality, did not expect the reaction and backlash they would receive the following morning as many of them thought the story to be too outlandish to be (laughs) believable. But, like I said, a perfect storm for many reasons. Alien invasion and one stereotype of the subhuman, emotionless, colonizing E.T., was here to stay, and has been used many, many times since. Another stereotype of these non-human entities comes to us in the 1951 flick, The Day the Earth Stood Still. The gist of the story is a humanoid extraterrestrial named Clatu lands his saucer on the White House lawn. Joined by his trusty robot servant, Gort, he proceeds to communicate that he only means goodwill to mankind and then is promptly shot by a nervous soldier. He's taken to a hospital. While there, he tells the president's secretary that the world's leaders need to be gathered as he has an important message to share with the world. The president's secretary is like nah, fam, that, that, that's not going to happen. Like, have you even met us? We're kind of on the outs with each other, like, all the time. Klaatu is like, say less, King. I'll just go out and be one of you and get to the bottom of all y'all's unreasoning suspicions and attitudes. Let me see. Let me see what's up out there. And the president's secretary is like, nah, fam. So Klaatu escapes the hospital, befriends a woman, and her son, tells a scientist that inhabitants of other planets are concerned about Earth's aggression and their nuclear missiles, and if his message is ignored, Earth might be destroyed. The scientist agrees to gather other scientists from around the world to meet Klaatu and hear what he has to say. Before the meeting, Klaatu tells the woman he befriended, if anything should happen to him, she needs to say the magic words to Gort. And then Gort would know what to do. Klaatu is then shot dead by the army. The lady runs to Gort, says the magic words. Gort jumps into action, retrieving Klaatu's dead body, takes him back to their spaceship where Klaatu is resurrected just in time for the meeting with the scientist where he delivers his message. Live in peace while we continue to keep an eye on you or die. And then Klaatu and Gort jump into their ship and ascend to the heavens to await an answer. So here we actually have varying stereotypes. We've got the uh, I come in peace, E.T., the we are all concerned about man's aggression toward each other and your nuclear bombs being misused, E.T., the you need to fix this or it will be the end of your world, E.T., and the we are watching you and everything you do, E.T., But yeah, live the way we want you to live, act how we want you to act, or die. It's not hard to see how the theme and final message were metaphorically reflective of the time. This was Cold War era U.S., uh, anti-communist hysteria was running rampant, and an alien might have seemed like the perfect vehicle for uh, I, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, propaganda. Um, the Red Scare influence can also be seen in the 1953 first movie adaptation of War of the Worlds, which takes us back to the sinister, evil, emotionless invaders that we cannot seem to defeat. Even after dropping an A-bomb on them, they continue their march forward to annihilate our species in order to make room for their own and continue their civilization on Earth. I thought it was interesting that these metaphorical red communist invaders are inhabitants of Mars, the red planet. It seems, uh, it's a little on the nose, right? Not very subtle. But apparently this darker portrayal of aliens was what the people needed and wanted more of at the time. Fear sells. The 50s would birth numerous films in the same vein. Us versus the Evil Other, The Thing from Another World, Invaders from Mars, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Invasion of the Saucermen, Killers from Space. These films contain themes of invasion, survival, destruction, attack, danger. You get the picture. Uh, I want to pop in just, just a quick note on the little green man stereotype before we get too far in, because if you look at this list of movies, earlier works than this, you know, than the 50s, uh, science fiction novels published before that, the descriptions of the beings do vary quite a bit. It gets hard to pinpoint when that specific stereotype even comes about. It's likely there were several factors that contributed to it. Yes, in some of those early works of literature in the 20th century, Martians and other alien beings were described as having green skin, along with visual depictions in comic books and pulp magazines in the 30s and 40s. These characters were depicted in ways to emphasize their non-humanness, their distinct otherness, equipped with exaggerated features and at times green skin. I suspect this idea was born from these early works, and being the most visually striking representation was easy enough to incorporate it, thanks to the news media, into the broader societal mind once reports started becoming more widespread of UFO sightings, encounters with extraterrestrials, and incidents that included reports of small deceased pilots, such as in Roswell. So out of the cacophony of influences and imagination, it was the coolest, most striking, most memorable representation. And I think that's what happened. Before we jump into the 60s, a quick word from our awesome sponsor, Cannonballs! This summer, let's remember, it's not always about the size of those cannonballs. It's about making a splash with our friends at Manscaped. Prep them in in your life for barbecue season by making sure your special grill master has the hottest dogs the summer's ever seen. Now I want hot, I want barbecue. When they are at the cookout, let the meat speak for itself with Manscaped's performance package 4.0. It is time to get ready and not sweaty by going to manscaped.com and using code PNG for 20% off and free shipping. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 is a luxury grooming kit and the ultimate bundle for your summer grooming needs. This kit... Features the lawnmower 4.0 plus the weed whacker 2.0, twice the trimmers, half the time, and none of the hair where you don't want it. The kit also includes the crop preserver deodorant, crop reviver toner, and even comes with two free gifts the Manscaped boxers and shed travel bags. So consider your summer grooming needs met. And get 20% off and free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PNG. Manscaped, the perfect way to get those patties sizzling hot this summer. The 60s still brought us themes of danger and invasion, though it seems the tides were turning a bit. It was the decade of love and peace but also marked some pretty high tensions in the ongoing Cold War. So, we see the themes and effects of E.T. cinema taking on numerous and varied forms, with many incorporating elements of paranoia, fear, and threat of invasion, such as the day Mars invaded Earth in 1963. And um, another adaptation, a radio drama adaptation of War of the Worlds, again, In 1968, with the space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, there was also growing public fascination with space exploration. So we start to see more flicks featuring astronauts, rockets and journeys through space and to other planets like Robinson Crusoe on Mars and Barbarella. And the 60s also saw a surge to the low-budget, campy B-sci-fi and campy comedy such as 67's Mars Needs Women and The Green Slime in 68. This decade might have been a favorite for the teams of Mystery Science Theater to review. The 60s also brought us some expansion with the visual representations of extraterrestrial beings. In the day Mars invaded Earth, they aren't even depicted at all. The film veers from the robot or creature from space motif and focuses more on the idea of aliens replacing humans and the paranoia surrounding that infiltration rather than showing the aliens themselves. Nice way to save money on the wardrobe department, I might add. In the day of the Triffids, the aliens were vicious plant creatures Robinson Crusoe gives us a friendly, reddish-tan creature named Friday. How cute. We see empathyless humanoid-robotic aliens with glowing eyes, and the Earth dies screaming. Aren't these all great titles? And in the green slime, we watch as a gelatinous, gooey-green substance mutates into one-eyed, tentacled things. Quick note about the gray alien. This visual had been around before the 60s, but was really brought into society's crosshairs during this decade with Betty and Barney Hill's abduction. And this visual would really start to come into play in cinema down the road in the late 70s, 80s, and onward. Speaking of the 70s, a film that terrified me to my core when I was a kid and helped add to the collective trauma for millennials everywhere, thank you very much. I mean, what didn't, though? Like, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. The 1979 Ridley Scott masterpiece. Alien. Nightmare fuel. Dudes. Xenomorphs redefined the monster. And again, it was an unstoppable, undefeatable, emotionless, intelligent critter with an incredible knack for carnage and insatiable desire to kill. Kudos for the realism of these creatures. And the innovative special effects. Acid blood, dripping saliva, aliens bursting from stomachs. I still have PTSD. And as a kid, I had never seen anything like it. It was unexpected, terrifying and certainly set a tone for an entire movie-consuming culture. The 70s also brought us the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers starring Donald Sutherland. Reviewers of the time saw this story as a commentary on the dangers facing the U.S. for turning a blind eye to McCarthyism— what would happen should we just ignore the impending infiltration of communism that would result in bland conformity? Others saw it as an allegory for the loss of personal autonomy within a communistic system. So everyone thought communism immediately when they saw this movie. Well, not, not everyone, but there was a trend manifesting in sci-fi films regarding dehumanization, and the fear of the loss of individual identity. And imaginative portrayals of E.T. was an impactful vehicle to use for this trend. In Invasion of the Body Snatchers, spores float from outer space and implant themselves in San Francisco, growing into flowering pods. It is found that as people sleep, the pod begins to make exact replicas of a person. The original dies as their pod person clone takes their place in society, though far more dead-eyed and emotionless than real humans. By the end of the movie, the entirety of San Francisco is presumably replaced and more pods are being sent by boat to other areas of the world. And that's a downer of an ending, all thanks to these communistic aliens hell-bent on forcing everything into conformity. Scroll through any top ten, top 20 list of ET or UFO based sci fi films of the 70s, and you will find a majority fall into the horror genre. Horror! Aliens are bigger, badder, faster, smarter, sneakier, and are definitely something to fear. They are the monster that lives beneath your bed. And then you have rare gems like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What an awesome film of the time, and in my personal opinion, still holds its ground to this day. Crappy effects of the 70s, be damned. Flying saucers, orbish zooming lights, mesmerized experiencers, inexplicable compulsions, a massive mothership, abduction of a toddler. <laughs> he was he was returned. He's fine. And a final reveal of some kind and pretty cute, childlike gray aliens. So it wasn't all gore and blood and invasion. They still abducted a toddler while his mother screamed and and cried. And and they did give Richard Dreyfuss's character pretty hard out to ever paying child support following what was in all likelihood going to be a divorce. But yeah, Steven Spielberg had a different take in the Sea of Horror and this one certainly sticks out. Side note Spielberg publicly stated a theory of his own in regards to UFOs and ET that I thought interesting. I'd be curious to know how it differs from his opinion on the subject as he was making these kinds of movies in the 70s. During his appearance on Stephen Colbert's show, he spoke about not being entirely convinced that the mysterious objects people are seeing is somebody who has figured out faster than light travel. He wasn't so sure that these are some advanced civilization traveling millions of light years to come here. But he did ask, what if it's us 500,000 years in the future coming back to document the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century because they're anthropologists and they know something we don't quite know yet that has occurred. And they're trying to track the last hundred years of our history. Interesting thought. It's not the first time that I have heard some variation of the we are them, they are us theory. My only qualm with his take is that these sightings and encounters have been ongoing throughout human history. It's only been widely recognized within the last century. There was also some interesting literature coming about by those investigating the phenomenon. Chariots of the Gods, written by Eric von Daniken, while published in 68, gained significant attention during the 70s. The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel was published in 75... And that was the same year as the Travis Walton abduction. The public's perception and pop culture were being shaped on the subject from every direction, being inspired with educated theories and imaginative visuals and real-world incidents. But I think that's a pretty good snapshot of what we were dealing with in the 70s. Let's move on to the decade we all know you tuned in for. The glorious 1980s, baby! It was a genre-defining decade in regards to extraterrestrials, UFOs, and space travel. And the films and portrayals that came out of it are, are, are just iconic. You know what it is just by a freeze frame. And if you're anything like me, this is the part in the episode where you're going to be like, oh, dang, I loved that movie. I know what I'm rewatching with dinner tonight. Let's start off with the national treasure, batteries not included. Quite simply, the most underrated, charming, and unique take on UFOs of all time. Also by Spielberg, this film concerned tiny flying saucers with bright eyes and adorable personalities and a willingness to help our human characters to repair what is broken, to fight back against injustice, and ultimately, I won't ruin how, if you haven't seen it, shame on you, go watch it, ultimately, they saved the day. Also, one of the saucers is pregnant and gives birth to three baby saucers. One is stillborn, but is revived later with parts from a television, and their family is made whole again. I mean, how can you not adore this movie? Sentient UFOs might not be too far off the mark here. Have a heart. Oh, what's that? Where are the romantic E.T. movies? Ugh, yet another underrated film, Starman, starring a very young Jeff Bridges. Responding to an invitation to come to Earth by its people, an alien on a scouting vessel heads on over to Earth to accept said invitation and establish first contact when he is promptly shot down. (laughs) And y'all wonder why they don't want to just land on the White House lawn and make themselves known. Luckily, he winds up in the home of a recently widowed lady and is able to clone his non-corporeal floating ball of light body into a physical replica of the late husband. An adventure soon takes place as they road trip together to get him to his rendezvous pickup point so he can get off this hostile rock and go home. Romance ensues. Babies are made. It was a great flick and a very different take. On the relationship between humans and E.T., though they do still include that fear of other as the government tracks the couple cross-country trying to kill the guy at every turn. But love wins, yo. Uh, I really appreciate having grown up with this tweak to the possible renditions of alien beings. Not just their form, but their personality. Who they are. The one-dimensional aliens-are-all-evil-monsters theme theme can get tiring, you know? And he was also peaceful, meant zero harm. Humans were far more of a danger to this ET than he was to humanity. Perhaps our collective mind was acknowledging that in this movie, perhaps. And we can see other peaceful takes in the 80s with films like The Abyss, Cocoon, ET, The Extraterrestrial, These kinds of films stretched the expectation. They they fill your heart with joy, with acceptance, fill your mind with wonder, wonder at the possibilities. These aren't just entertainment for entertainment's sake. These are thinkers. These are bittersweet. They're emotional. You're sad, but also happy to see E.T. finally get to go home, right? He was Elliot's friend, but he was also our friend. The amorphous uh, water creatures in the abyss are awe-inspiring. And these serene, benevolent portrayals put these beings into a sentimental, personal light, doesn't it? Like, Like where we can almost see ourselves in them. And that might have something to do with certain progressive movements gaining momentum in this decade Activism for civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and activities in regards to environmentalism. There was a rising level of compassion that reared its head in the 80s. It wasn't all fine and dandy by any stretch. But I wonder if these advances didn't contribute to turning what was once a monster into something a bit more identifiable. And if they weren't sentimental flicks, they were flicks that poked a bit of fun at the concept and continued to push the envelope, whether with satire, music, or straight-up campy comedy. Little Shop of Horrors, the uh, 80s version, was the first to include the concept that Audrey II was alien. John Carpenter's They Live, Spaceballs, Howard the Duck, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. But the straight alien horror film was, and I, th- I think always will be, a sure thing within pop culture. At least until we know better, or we move on to our next collective monster, because fear sells. So we have pop culture and cinematic history being made with movies like Aliens, the second film in the franchise, Predator, starring the Governor, and John Carpenter's The Thing. It was a good decade to be John Carpenter. Literature during this decade was popping too. Whitley Strieber would write about his personal encounters with the Greys and his abduction in the 87 book Communion, which would quickly be turned into a film of the same name just two years later. Another 87 work was by Jacques Vallée, titled Dimensions. His book includes personal experiences and theories regarding ancient and modern abductions based on cases he had collected over the years, while also focusing in on his thoughts on the extraterrestrial hypothesis, suggesting that these beings are based out of other dimensions— rather than other planets. Very interesting. Uh, Bud Hopkins published Intruders, a really thorough look at various abductions. Uh, he published that in 88. There were, of course, others, but this sampling of the literature floating around at this time is intriguing. It shows that there were people who were sincerely taking aliens and the abduction phenomenon Seriously. They were having their own experiences. They were receiving more letters and correspondence by experiencers than they knew what to do with. The ufological field of study and discussion were becoming more abundant in public discourse. The idea that this subject might be something seriously needing to be looked into was becoming more public. The 80s was just the best decade. Or so I've heard. Where my 90s babies at? The 90s produced one of my all-time favorite E.T. and Flying Saucer flicks, Fire in the Sky. I was very young when I saw it. I didn't know at the time that it was based on a true story. I was a kid. I wouldn't have noticed that. It was just entertainment. Now, being much more well-versed with the Walton abduction case, I have a whole new fascination with it. I appreciate that this movie was not meant to be metaphor. It's not It's not an allegory about the socio-political climate of Zimbabwe. No, no, no. It's just a straight-up graphic, dramatic retelling of something that took place, aside from some of the details that took place inside of the craft that were added for more dramatic effect because the producers found Walton's description of his actual abduction too boring. <laughs> aside from that... This is Walton's story, and it's nuts, in a good way, nuts. Also, you would think if someone were making up a story about being abducted to financially gain from it, they would have adopted more extreme uh, details to boring Jesus. And as we talked about in the abduction episode, Walton has been tested by polygraph since his incident to prove he is telling the truth and holds to this day that this really did happen. Now go re-watch it. You know you want to. I had a hard time narrowing down the rest of the films from this decade that uh, I was going to expand on because I completely forgot so many good ones came out of the 90s, dudes. Something I did notice about the films of this decade from an outside perspective, it's almost like there was this battle with which direction to take aliens and UFO in cinema. We still see the cold, heartless invasions in movies like Independence Day, The Puppet Master, and The Faculty, also another great film. And we still see the cold-blooded, animalistic killer with the lust for blood, such as with Aliens 3, Aliens Resurrection, Species, and Predator 2 but we have far more comedic and very creative takes on the subject and the visual of E.T., Mars Attacks, Space Jam, Galaxy Quest, Men in Black, Muppets in Space, and Coneheads! (laughs) Can't forget about Coneheads! An extremely popular one that both children and adults equally love, The Iron Giant a heartwarming tale of unlikely friendship between a boy and his alien robot set during the Cold War. Aw. I'm wondering if this vast menu of different takes is due to a need for pop culture, naturally, to branch out, to stretch the limits or step outside of the borders of what's been done time and time again, or is it a more subliminal reflection of our own relaxation about the topic as a society. Have we become far more okay with the concept than we are aware? And so far in this episode, man, have we come a long way from complete and certain annihilation from an invasive, undefeatable monster to cartoons and friendship and Muppets... (laughs) Something shifted. All right. Final section today. The 2000s to the present. Let's do it in one fell swoop here. Uh, What I think is important as we go through these is to, one, be aware of where we have come from. What were the themes and stories of our earliest cinema and literature? What was pop culture relaying to us about this evil other? Two... Look at the path that we have weaved throughout the decades. When did things start to shift? And three, examine where we are today. Get a very clear picture of how society as a whole is experiencing this phenomenon through the lens of pop culture, because four, (laughs) that might tell us what to expect next. Where is our trajectory pointed? I dived thoroughly into these final films, I wanted to know, in the last two decades, what theme is being pushed, whether it's threat narrative, a.k.a. invading invaders, or comedy, or satirical, or, or we're all in this together, kumbaya, let's collaborate, et cetera, et cetera. I, I hope I'm making that clear, the distinction that I was drawing, because I did, in fact, find some interesting trends between the two camps. It's strange to me that the invasion, horror, creepy, blood, and gore portrayals take up a majority of what had been released. A lot of these types of films and and these alien and UFO stereotypes being pushed out into the public sphere. However, it's very interesting to me how well, They actually did compared to the more comedic, hopeful, let's work together, let's find a way to communicate and understand each other type portrayals. The last 20 years brought us such evil invasions as War of the Worlds, surprise, surprise, Signs, A Quiet Place, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and 10 Cloverfield Lane. I, I said those in the order of how well they did at the box office, with War of the Worlds raking in $604 million, followed by a significant drop-off with the others. Further predatory, creepy, bloodlusty E.T. portrayals can be seen in Prometheus, Alien vs. Predator, The Remake of The Thing, Life, and Slither. Most of these could easily fit into the horror genre. Most of these did not do as well as you would have expected them to have done. So, what's the problem? Aliens are monsters, right? We usually eat this monster flick stuff right up. Were there just too many released? Was the market flooded? Possibly. When we take a look at the other side of the aisle, though, with comedies such as Men in Black 2, Men in Black 3, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Paul, or themes of collaborations such as in Transformers, Arrival, and Avatar, though there seems to have been fewer releases that shed a more open, supportive light on ETs, they did stupid good. Public reception was dope. Son. As a matter of fact, the highest-grossing movie of all time, raking in $2.9 billion, maintaining an 82% Rotten Tomatoes rating, maintaining a 7.9 out of 10 IMDb rating—do you know how hard that is?—is is Avatar. Avatar is literally about aliens, <laughs> and, and it's about collaboration— Communication, romance, connection with others, connection with the environment, doing what's right for the sake of other. It's hopeful, it's exciting, and it's obviously what folks want now. Money talks, ratings talk, fear sells, but perhaps inspiration, hope, and recognition of other sells better. Or maybe it was the fantasy aspect and the incredible visuals of the film. I don't know. I'm not a film critic. I'm just speculating here. One more trend that I noticed in the last 20 years, and it's kind of cool to see, no matter what sub-genre these fall into, are films that are putting humans into the alien seat. Humans as the foreign astronaut. Humans doing the scientifically impossible or improbable to explore space and other planets or even other realities and dimensions. Interstellar comes to mind. Other films like The Martian, Gravity, Extinction, Prospect, Avatar again. It's a shift that focuses more on us as that traveler with a purpose in another's territory. Trading places, so to speak. So, now that we understand these interesting trends, all of my own deducing, you don't have to agree, of E.T. in our past pop culture, what is the future looking like? What's our reaction looking like? I think cinema, especially, has done both a service and a disservice to our understanding of this phenomenon. The service is, of course... Providing that spotlight, getting more people to ponder the possibility to start asking questions, to look to the skies instead of down at their feet. The disservice lies in misunderstanding and confusion, i.e. the threat narrative, how they look, what they want. It strikes fear when in all reality, there may be absolutely nothing to fear. It plants the idea of versus, us versus them, us versus the big, bad, other. Humans have only survived as long as they have due to two things, primarily, in my opinion, fear of the unknown and curiosity of the unknown. Fear has kept us safe. Curiosity has allowed us to grow and evolve and create and thrive. There have been a lot of developments and articles, incident reports, and revelations in the news recently. I don't know if we are on the brink of something about to break wide open. As mind-boggling as it seems, my gut tells me yes so long as history doesn't repeat itself again. But if that something does finally break, if we are finally exposed to the truth that those in power have believed for so long that we couldn't handle, I have so much more faith in humanity to handle it like a pro. If the path of our pop culture on the subject has taken and our reaction to it is any indication. Again, in my own opinion. (laughs) Someone else is going to feel very differently about these films and literature and the effects on society that we have covered today. And that's the beauty of cinema. It's just artistic storytelling. And uh, art is subjective, man. But I do think, for the most part, we are going to be just fine. We can handle the paradigm shift... And I'll, I'll tack on this one final thing. This is my public plea to the government to release it. Release it all. Unclassify everything. It's time. Dang it. All right. I think that's going to be a wrap for now. Time for a final note. That was a lot of information to digest today and a lot of my own speculation. I hope you guys got some value out of this one, though it was a little outside of the regular fare for my regular deep dives. Uh, I was an actor for a very long time and I love movies, so this was just fun for me to explore. Today's information has certainly given me um, additional perspective and that is my hope for you as well. Never a lack of different ways to ponder this phenomenon, is there? That being said, my brain hurts. So, instead of some philosophical, insightful revelation, today's final note will be fun and, best of all, brief. I would like to share with you a few favorite, noteworthy quotes I pulled from the films included in this episode. Here we go. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. They live. Helmet. So at last, we meet for the first time for the last time. Spaceballs. Get to the chopper! (laughs) Predator. (laughs) I'm just a mean green mother from outer space, and I'm bad. Little shop of horrors, thank you very much. And one of my all-time favorite quotes. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that humans were alone on this planet. Thank you all for tuning in. That wraps today's show. And if you are listening upon its release, I've only got one thing to say to you. We are fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day the world declared in one voice. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. Happy 4th peeps. In other words, (laughs) happy 4th of July. Be cautious with the explosives tonight, but really have a great holiday. I will be eating lots of barbecue. I'm still craving it. That's what I'm doing. Celebrate or spend the day in the way you see fit, folks, and have a great rest of your week too. Join me next Tuesday for an all-new guest conversation. Until then... Stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.